0: Welcome to Shakespeare and Pals, episode 13, The Comedy of Errors, 1594. This is a podcast where we go through the works of William Shakespeare in chronological order, and also the works of his pals. That is either his influences, like we did last month, or his contemporaries. But... This time, we're doing Shakespeare, one of his early comedies, a direct adaptation of Plautus's The Brother Me. So, Sophie, what is your relationship with the Comedy of Errors?
1: Um, I don't really have a relationship with this play. I mean, honestly, I will, nine times out of ten, say I have no relationship with a Shakespearean play unless it's in retrospect, like the Richard III, and maybe later I will realise, oh, wait, this other media that I had previously consumed that I did not know had any relationship thereof to Shakespeare may exist, but none has come to my attention for the comedy of errors. I will say... um, You mean
0: you aren't a great fan of the Boys from Syracuse, the 1950s musical?
1: I adore that you think I have watched anything musical or artistic from anywhere before the
0: 1970s. And my relationship with the comedy of errors is, I've read it, for some reason, I've read this three times so far. Not because I like it, really. Uh, The first time I read it, was because I was trying to read all of Shakespeare's plays, and this just so happened to be one of his plays that was available at a bookstore that was going out of business. So I snapped it up for $5, read it then, forgot most of it, then I have a book club, a book club also called Shakespeare and Pals. Listeners, sometimes we do it, Online, So feel free to pop along Shakespeare and Pals on meetup.com Shakespeare and Pals. I will repeat this at the end. We read it for that Mm -hmm. as well. We read the comedy of errors for that as well. I had to read it then again. I skimmed it. I skimmed it because I knew that I'd have to read it in depth a few months later for this podcast. So, this is the third time that I've read it. For a play that I don't quite like, I've read it quite a few times. More than some of the plays that I think are very good. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I actually quite enjoyed it. I actually quite enjoyed this um play. It might be because it's
0: so blissfully short. Yes, it is... It, it does get to the point. I think it's his shortest play. Uh, moving on to the biography section, I guess. This play... According to the Oxford edition of my play, this play seems to have been commissioned for a Christmas season performance at Gray's Inn in Holborn. So Shakespeare is making this play for a private audience of educated men. So the audience would have known the source of this play, might very well have read it at school for uh, in the original Latin. When it comes, as people might know, a lot of the time I uh, bring up a book called The Shakespeare, The Critical Heritage, edited by Brian Vickers, which is a compendium, a six volume, six massive volumes of pre-20th century uh, criticism of Shakespeare. And for this play, as you can imagine, for this play, there's not been much said about it. It's not really one of the works that critics are striving to say something about. However, the few times it is mentioned, it's usually brought up in arguments about just how much classical learning Shakespeare had. As you can imagine, given that this is based on a ancient Latin play, it's going to come up on either side of the argument. And there, the argument is on one side people say, well, obviously, there was no translation of it at the time. Uh, therefore this shows that he did know how to speak Latin, and other people are saying, oh, well, there must have been a translation, there must have been a translation, because how could this fool have ever spoken it, spoken Latin, (laughs) because it's quite a difficult... And basically, you know, it does turn out there was a translation at the time, but that translation, according to the Critical Heritage, was released a year after Shakespeare wrote this play. So, (laughs) it does seem that Shakespeare read this play, like most students nowadays, read Shakespeare. It takes them a lot of trouble to read it in school, and maybe they'll never return to actually reading it after school, but he most certainly did read this in school, as shown by the fact that we have this play. The other the other things in the Critical Heritage are mainly just criticising the, quote, doggerel rhymes in this play. Oh my god! Act 1. We are far away in the Mediterranean, where currently Syracuse and Ephesus are at odds. Any Syracusian caught trading in Ephesus is sentenced to death unless they can pay 1,000 marks. Quite a lot of money! A man called Aegeon is sentenced to death because he's been going all over the Mediterranean looking for his long lost son called Antiphilus. He tells the entire story in an incredibly long length to the Duke who has just sentenced him to die. The Duke who says, oh no, my hands are tied. I can't let you off. I have nothing against you, old man, but I am going to have to kill you because of our laws. The Duke tells Aegeon. If someone can pay your bond, if someone can pay a thousand marks by the end of the day, you'll go free. Then we have separately a man called Antiphilus, Antiphilus of Syracuse, coming with his slave, Dromio of Syracuse, to Ephesus in search of their brother, who is also called Antiphilus. But this Antiphilus is Antiphilus of Ephesus. But Antiphilus of Syracuse does not know that there is an Antiphilus of, of Ephesus at this point. And Dromio does not know there is a Dromio of, of Ephesus at this point. At this point, they are just on this island for no particular reason, it seems. Antiphilus gives. Dr- Antiphilus of Syracuse gives Dromio of Syracuse some money to care for, but then Antiphilus of Syracuse comes across Dromio of Ephesus, and when Dromio of Ephesus tells Antiphilus of Syracuse that he remembers being given no money, Antiphilus of Syracuse starts beating Dromio of Ephesus. So already the comedy begins, the comedy violence of beating your slaves, Sophie, have I left anything out?
1: Nope, nope. It was that's pretty straightforward. That is pretty much exactly what happened.
0: Do you have any simple names we should give to Antipholus of Syracuse uh, or Dromio of Ephesus? How shall we tell them apart?
1: I mean, I kind of wanted to name um, Antipholus of Syracuse as Shiraz. Um. How about Antiphony for <laughs> Antiphony for Ephesus and mm. for Syracuse
0: Siraz? So Antipholus of Ephesus is Antiphony and Antiphilus of Syracuse is Shiraz. And yeah. the Dromios, shall we say that one of them is uh, DOS, the other is do. <laughs> DOS and Do. <laughs> Already we can It's the value of doing Plautus before this is that in an adaptation, we can, especially in what is quite a direct adaptation like this, we can see what Shakespeare is concerned about. We can see what Shakespeare's ideological and aesthetic drives make him do. There are quite some key changes in this. Like, for instance, in Plautus, The beginning prologue, the beginning prologue where they say, oh, this boy was kidnapped and taken away and then his grandfather died or then this man died and stuff like this. At least in my translation, it was treated incredibly flippantly. Like, oh, it's a joke. How lightly we are taking this. In this one, this thing called the comedy of errors, this comedy, this farce, begins with an old man sentenced to death giving us this information as a in the most a somber way possible saying that he is happy to die because he wants to escape this suffering quite a different tone to begin a comedy with
1: yeah that's definitely the tone the um the audiobook gave me but i was actually a little disappointed because you can make this comedic
0: i'd say that at the length it goes on for, the comedy would very quickly wear thin.
1: Well, like, if you think of um, A- Aegean or Aegean as the dad, as Eeyore, and Salinas the Duke as Rabbit from Winnie the Pooh, I it's actually quite, quite I think it's quite funny, because they can pussy Salinas to, to, to procure my fall and by the doom of death and, and woes and all. And Salinas can be like, you know, Merchants of Syracuse, plead no more. I am not partial to infringe our laws. The enmity and discord, which of late, sprung from the rancorous outrage of your duke to merchants, our well-dealing countrymen, who want guilders, and blah, blah, You know, the whole, no, don't, don't plead for your life. Don't, don't try to convince me. Don't try to bribe me. This is a deal that is big and beyond us. We're just, and it has to happen. You die if since you're here. If I was over there, I'd die too. There's no changing it. And then... Egypt like, yet yeah, this my comfort, when your words are done, my woes and, and likewise with the evening sun. Like...
0: At this point, I'll, I'll take I'll, I'll take what you said on board. I, I would say that I'm at the moment, treating it as a hypothesis that would need to be tested. I'd like to see someone play this for comedy before I fully accept that. Because at the moment, I'm thinking that if you did try to play it for comedy, it would just wear thin incredibly quickly, it wouldn't really work. But you know, let, let's... Let's put on a show and let's check.
1: Yeah. No, but yeah, I can sort of also see it as going a bit too much, just going, oh God, just fucking end this already. But yeah, I'm a little, that's that's where I'm coming from.
0: Yes. And the time itself, you know, the 24 hours, that actually does Shakespeare sort of signaling that in this play at least he is going to obey the classical unities, the classical unities being a series of plotting rules of the time period that people thought came from the ancient world but may have been the product of a mistranslation of a miscommunication of a medieval era text but the basic idea is that in order for a plot to suspend continue the willing suspension of disbelief a plot has to take place within 24 hours there can't be too much time a plot has to take place in one location you know you don't want to be jumping all over the world because how can the single stage represent the entire world and also it needs to follow one plot line so this this play and also the tempest those are the only two plays that actually obey the classical unities so I assume that because Shakespeare was basing this on an ancient play and because he was showing it to an educated audience, that's why he was showing off that he could do it if he wanted to, even though he never wanted to again.
1: I am surprised that it's only this play and The Tempest. I thought, there must be more. Even um, Midsummer Night's Dream, doesn't that not happen, like, over one evening or just, you know, a day and a night and a day?
0: Uh, hmm... I'd say that perhaps the there are multiple plots to that one. So,
1: oh right, that is true. There are multiple plots to that one, aren't there? And also and- multiple <laughs>
0: places. There's the forest, and also there is you know the palace and stuff like that.
1: Right. Okay.
0: In this play, I think some productions do it. What you know, throughout the play, there are two inns: the Centaur and the something or other. Those can be just put at either side of the stage. So it can just be one place, one city square in this.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I can definitely see that.
0: I'd say these rules of theatre caught on more in France and Italy than in England. The English didn't particularly care. Ben Johnson cared. He cared a lot. But (laughs) nowadays, no one cares about Ben Johnson.
1: The English was like, you know what? We want some escapism. Let's go everywhere.
0: Rules out cool. all. There's so let's keep on talking about just some of the, the most obvious changes that Shakespeare makes. Like in, in Plautus, we did Plautus, and I think we can agree that Plautus is not concerned with psychological depth. He's very okay with having cardboard cutouts come onto the stage, and the comedy comes from the interaction of these cardboard cutouts in funny situations. In this play. Uh, we can tell that Shakespeare does like to give characters psychological monologues. Like, we have uh, Antiphilus of Syracuse, we have Shiraz, come to Ephesus. And so in Plautus, the character, the menaechmus of Syracuse, he comes in and he just says, I am here to find my brother. OK, just set it up. We don't get that much psychological depth to him. We get his goal. We get why he's here. Uh, and that's pretty much all the character we get in Shakespeare. The second Antiphilus comes here.
1: I, 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 I see it. He that commends me to mine own content commends me to the thing I cannot get. I to the world am like a drop of water that in the ocean seeks another drop, who, falling there to find his fellow forth unseen inquisitive, confounds himself. So I, to find a mother and a brother in quest of them unhappy, lose myself. Enter Dromio of Ephesus just immediately starting the shenanigans
0: yes if my if your reading of the first act being a uh, the first scene being a comedy thing is not correct as I believe I would say that Dromeo entering is actually not just the start of the farce but also the first joke in the entire play so uh yes
1: yeah that's fair it's
0: like here comes jokes come on jokes come on to the stage
1: but, here yes. comes the almanac of my true date. And it's like, here comes the jokes
0: yes. from this very moment. But yes, I, I on another note, I, did th- I in the last episode, I think I gave Shakespeare too much credit because I said that in Plautus, Plautus has this character looking for his twin brother, which creates quite a strange level of strained credulity because this character keeps on getting mistaken for someone else. And not once does he even consider that maybe they're mistaking him for the twin brother that he has come to this island to look for, that he is going all over the place to look for. I said that Shakespeare gets rid of that plot hole by having Antiphilus just come to the island. And I will say that it is very ambiguous why he is on that island in this one. So Antiphilus says, so I, to find a mother and a brother in quest of them unhappy, lose myself. So I'm not sure. Does that mean that he is still on quest for them? Or does it mean that he has previously looked for them and now, you know, in quest of them, unhappy? Does that mean he's given up? So yes, I don't know. Uh, Shakespeare's quite vague as to why he's on this island to begin with.
1: Yeah. And, um, well, I'm assuming that it's later revealed in the play that uh, Antiphilus and his dad have been apart for, like, seven years. So maybe he's. Like beforehand, seven years ago, when first Antiphilus of Syracuse, Shiraz, went out searching for his long lost brother, that he was full of vigor and verve for the journey. But after seven long fucking years, he's like, I've been doing this for seven long fucking years.
0: Yes, this is one of the... Yes, this is... I I, I do like that reading. I like that reading. It also shows another thing where... Like, in a, lot of in a lot of footnotes in Shakespeare, when they find, like, what seems like a plotting consistency, the footnote will pull together lots of details and say, oh, actually, this is entirely in keeping with character. This is entirely uh, 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 consistent. It's not a plot hole. And you can do that with Shakespeare. It does feel somewhat convincing with Shakespeare. If you try to do that with Plautus's characters, that would not work. There is nothing Absolutely to them not. other than what they explicitly tell you.
1: <laughs> Although, um... Plautus does a really good job of explaining why the twins have the two fucking same names, which is, you know, one got stolen. The, the granddad, wild as he was, was like, I liked that one better. So the, the, the one that we've like somehow retained can have my name because I liked that one better because I had my name, like owning a goddamn pit and just going, oh, the other hamster's gone. Just get a new hamster and identical name of the same, same name. The kid won't notice, <laughs> but um, there's no explanation like that for this one. I think at least I didn't catch it because
0: you know I didn't. It, it, the only detail it gives is that uh, reft of his brother, but retained his name. That is all. That is the. Uh, it just sort of it just says that he has the same name. It doesn't say whether his name was changed, why his name was the same, or why his name was changed. It just gives us that. Maybe he's assuming that his audience has read the play, the, the original play and understands the reason. But yes, Shakespeare is sort of obscuring some of these backstory details.
1: Yeah, because um, my note for that was like, Antipholus was clearly the favourite child if both parents thought they had him and not the other twin.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> and also why so many A-named characters? There
0: are too many A's. Do you think that these uh, monologues actually make it better? Do you think that the fact that these characters just start turning to the camera and start giving their soul to you—do you think this makes it better? For I, for one, it's like—for it, for, let, let's give an example of something like, for instance, the movie *Airplane*. Brilliant comedy, amazing comedy. Uh, I would say that if Leslie Nielsen's character turned to the camera and started giving a soul-searching monologue about his internal feelings, that would, if anything, reduce the quality of the movie. I don't think that comedies or any works are made automatically better by having three-dimensional characters. So do you think that adding dimensionality to Plautus's characters has helped this story?
1: I mean, I think it kind of has. Just because um, to me it feels a little bit more real or it feels a little bit more understandable because in Manakemus, um the messy bitch was like, oh yeah, and I'm just going to go along with it while... Um, By messy
0: bitch, you of course mean Mackie, Menachemus of... No, Menachemus of Syracuse? No. no <laughs> it
1: is Menachemus <laughs> of Syracuse. Um Mac e is Monachmus of Epidamnos
0: i mean I myself when it comes to as as you can tell by my example of airplane i don't uh like sometimes I think that the monologues are somewhat I would change the Aegean monologue I don't think that should be that long. I think that perhaps uh i for one am a person who would prefer a comedy to make someone laugh uh, if it uh if you put in too much character depth that forgoes comedy even for a little bit, I think, okay, you stop doing your job right now. I'd say that Shakespeare's monologues, they are just sparse enough that I think, okay, I accept it, but watch yourself, watch yourself.
1: Yeah, no fair.
0: I'd say that as a comedy, as a farce, we've already already done one of Shakespeare's farces, Taming of the Shrew. And I don't think it's going to be controversial to say that I think that just, putting aside morality... Uh, I mean, this also has a shrew in it who, at the end, seems to be tamed. So that that is a consistent thing. Uh, but, no, in this one, putting aside the moral issues, aesthetically, as in terms of crafting a farce, this one is better. It's punchier, it's quicker, the confusion happens quicker, the confusion happens at a greater pace and a greater escalation.
1: Yep, no, I definitely agree with that.
0: Intending of the Shrew, it takes them three acts to set up three pieces, and then there is one confusion, and then really... It fizzles out. In this one, Dromio comes on stage, Dromio of Ephesus comes on stage, confusion starts, and then everything spirals out from there.
1: It's a pretty good spiral.
0: Act Two. Antiphony's wife, Adriana, in this version of Plautus's story, the wife does have a name. She is called Adriana. She is asking where her awful husband is, her awful husband, Antiphony. And her sister, Luciana, tells her to be patient. Be a good wife. Don't complain about where your husband is all the time. Ah, but then Doe comes in and says that Antiphony won't be coming home. He says that Antiphony has been beating him, when actually, unbeknownst to him, it is not Antiphony, but Shiraz who has been beating him, his brother's unknown twin. And then we have Dos returning to Shiraz, and Shiraz berates Uh, Doss for Doe stealing Shiraz's money because Doe said he did not have the money that uh, Shiraz gave to Doss, but Doss has the money, at which point Shiraz thinks there is magic and evil here. It is setting up his rather superstitious state of mind. But then we have Adriana finding Shiraz and Doss and hauls them to her home because she says you are my husband when actually it's not him that's her husband it's Antiphony. and she thinks that Doss is her husband's slave when actually no Doss is not her husband's slave it's Do who's her husband's slave but they drag these two men home with her and Shiraz just thinks I'll go along with this he goes along with this because he seems to think magic is involved
1: I mean, does he really go along with it? I feel like that's more of... I feel like that's a decision. And I feel like he was not allowed to make that decision. It's like, I am taking you, sir, and you have no say in the matter. I am hungry. You are my husband, and we are going to eat together. Uh, so you can't do any more shenanigans. I think just... Doss I is think, like, uh yeah. what are we gonna do? As I, like, well, we can't try to escape. These both of these ladies have our arms. So it's like, girl, ball.
0: Yeah, I'd find that in this. I'd say that that in itself would be a change from Plautus's one. It's sort of a like this guy saying, oh, these women are haranguing us to come home with them. All right, I suppose just to give them the peace of mind. I don't know. Uh, but in Plautus, I think the the Manekmus in Plautus he would have just said what are you doing you crazy bitch stop t- taking me with you uh, we can already see some difference in character for in this version of uh Antiphilus
1: yeah no Shiraz is like far more honorable than fucking Missy.
0: yes, uh, a bitch. yes I think we'll get to that a bit later on but yes and in this play all the characters are just nicer nicer I'd say that yeah we'll get our uh, We'll go into this deeper later on, but it does feel like how sometimes the movie adaptation of a book will just make characters more palatable, make them more palatable for a wider audience.
1: I don't know, and Tiffany is a bit of a bitch too.
0: Uh, Yeah, certainly, certainly. But he is beloved in his community.
1: I think he's just a bro's bro, and that doesn't make him a good person.
0: But on the note of... You know, when I first, in the first few times I read this play, and in fact in the last episode of this podcast, I was criticising the way that Antiphilus just seems to go along with the women pulling them along. In Plautus' version, the reason why he goes along with a woman pulling him into her house is because this is a an escort woman, this is a very attractive woman showering him with affection. And he understandably lowers his guard and lowers his critical thinking and just goes with her. So that I found psychologically realistic. In this one, Shakespeare is setting up, I believe, an aspect of Antiphilus's, of Shiraz's character, which is built upon later on, where he is superstitious, where he doesn't merely say, oh, this island has terrible uh, magic on it. He... He genuinely believes that, uh, because later on, they do sort... Uh, Shiraz and Doss go on sort of a violent spree. Not not actually, they don't hurt anyone, but they go on a spree with swords because they legitimately think that there are um, magic things going on. They think that the escort, the courtesan, they think that she is a witch. They genuinely think... So We're setting already we're setting up the fact that he thinks there's something magical going on here. And, like, for instance, Shiraz says... How can she then call us by our names unless it be by inspiration? Now, this line is incomplete. This line, this is iambic pentameter. There should be a few more beats in that line. So I think the fact that there are there's a missing beat in that line implies that he is thinking, maybe it is inspiration. Maybe there is something going on here. Maybe the gods have put an idea in my in her head or something like that. And then later on, she says, to me, she speaks she moves me for her theme what was i married to her in my dream or sleep i or sleep i now and think i hear all this whatever error drives our eyes and ears amiss until i know the sure uncertainty i'll entertain the offered fallacy and then later on he says am i in earth in heaven or in hell sleeping or waking mad or well advised known unto these and to myself disguise. I'll say as they say and persevere so, and in the mist at all adventures go. So I do think that Shakespeare is very subtly, you know, I, I'd say this is actually quite a good way to set up a later explosion of character where he is lacing here, that and that Shiraz is a person who has a bit of superstition in him which bit by bit is enlarged until he is willing to go on a let's draw our swords on this evil place let's run about the place of this magical island that sort of thing
1: yeah like um if you explain it that way it makes sense to me because i was kind of struggling with that a little bit when he eventually s- draws swords at the end because i was like is that's a bit excessive though isn't it boy and the but button- With that explanation, it's like, okay, okay, he has he has a heightened heightened sense of danger as he goes along. That makes sense.
0: It's Um, like one of those Darren Brown TV specials where it's like, just by doing this 10-step process, we got this man to kill somebody.
1: Jesus. But yes. Um and also when you briefly mentioned the shrew, are you talking about Adriana or Luciana?
0: Adriana. Adriana.
1: Okay. Adriana deserves every single, like, complaint she has.
0: Certain, I'd say that this is actually another place where Shakespeare, like, she is still basic. She starts, the original character Germ is the same, you know, shrew character, the nagging wife. He says, why aren't you home? Why don't you come home? Except, just like Shiraz, she is given a monologue where she goes through the motivations for her not liking the fact that her husband is away. And even when, you know, her, her sister Luciana, she's saying, oh no, you must be patient with your husband. To which Adriana just says, are you married? She says, oh no, I'm not. Well, good. The only reason you can say be patient is because you're not married. Anyone can endure the pains they're not subject to. It is, Shakespeare as being on, it's the same Shrew character, but Shakespeare is putting us on the Shrew's side so that by definition, she is no longer a shrew. She is a, a wronged woman.
1: Yes, absolutely. Adriana is wronged on on practically at every turn.
0: Although, not to give Shakespeare too much credit, at the very end, um she gets one sentence of character development when the abbess says, You mustn't you mustn't nag your husband so much, and she says, Oh, I see what you mean. <laughs> so <laughs> it is Shakespeare does, she says, oh yeah, she has a reason to be this bitch, but you mustn't be a bitch. Does she? Does she go? It uh, is one of those things where, just like the, the earlier part where, why is Anne, Why is Shiraz on this island? Oh, there's a small line explaining it. That bit of character development is also over and done within a single line.
1: Yeah. But anyway, um, the dromeos are great, I will say that.
0: They are certainly the ones with the most uh, traditional jokes in them. All the other comedy comes from, like, the situation. That, oh, this crazy situation where there are no real jokes. There are merely sort of deepening the situation. The Dromeos, they actually tell jokes.
1: Yeah. So I think, um, like, playing them must be a lot of fun. A bit annoying just to learn all their lines, but a lot of fun regardless.
0: I'd say that the the beating parts, the parts where they get beaten, wouldn't be that fun. Yeah, <laughs> it's a really you know. punch and Judy play.
1: It is a very punch and Judy play. I did try to like keep track of um uh, which Romeo got hit more, and I'm pretty sure it's Ephesus.
0: Yes, and it's always never his fault.
1: And it's always never his fault. Poor baby.
0: And I, you know, when I, I in my book club where we uh, do these plays, I have one guy. The comedy in this is quite plainly that a person is getting beaten. That is the joke. And a person like, oh, well, it was a very violent time at the time. That's why people could, uh, could like this comedy of people getting beaten. And I just think, have you seen any comedy? Have you seen any modern comedy? Have you seen the Looney Tunes? Violence has always been funny, and it still is funny.
1: Yeah, have you seen the most recent, like, Avengers movie? Literally, Iron Man just punching the shit out of the Hulk, going, go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep. Go to sleep.
0: Or uh, have you seen the new trailer for the uh, the Chris Pratt Mario movie where Mario's running out to fight Donkey Kong and he seems like he's going to win and then Donkey Kong just knocks him down and starts beating him up?
1: Yeah, that was great.
0: So so we are not so far past this. Our comedy is not entirely Monty Python sketches and no coward monologues. No, we still love a bit of good old beat someone up and laugh.
1: Yeah, at least... Like, I guess the main difference is we do it 95% on animation or, you know, CG now instead of, you know, person to person.
0: Yes, it needs to be a bit exaggerated for us to like it.
1: Yeah, because it gets a little bit too real if it's not.
0: I would say that I I said that the problem with doing this comedy violence on stage Uh, as opposed to a film. Like, on a film, you can choreograph every shot and so that you can make... You can... You you know, you're pulling your punches, but you can make it seem like you're actually punching someone. On stage, you can't really do that. And so there's the problem with these things where the joke is you're hitting someone, and yet, quite obviously, you're pulling your punches. You're not really hitting them. But a recent production I saw by the Bell Shakespeare Company which by all accounts is not a very good Shakespeare company. It's proof, if proof were needed, uh, that Shakespeare cannot be adapted to the stage. But uh, the Bell Shakespeare Company, uh, they they did the beating scenes where the characters are holding balloons. And so, yes, you you don't have to pull your punches with a balloon. You can hit each other with balloons at full force and it won't hurt that much. So you can do this night after night, hitting someone with a balloon. So I did like that choice as a way to keep in the violence, Uh, While also making it somewhat palatable as well as somewhat uh, convincing.
1: Yeah. And, like, at least for. um, You could probably do body shots if you go. If you have really padded um, jackets.
0: I mean, I suppose when I was reading this play, I was conceiving the punches as being sort of slaps to the head or knocks about the head, like in a. I've got the man's eye comedy routines. Yeah. Like, but you even
1: they, they, for those they did have um, Manzai-specific um, fans, it's just a piece of paper that's like folded um, on top of each other, kind of like um, how you'd expect an accordion to go. Like, what are they called? They're actually in, like, Smash Brothers. That item exists in, like, at least the first two Super Smash Brothers games, and I just can't remember what their goddamn name is.
0: According to, according to Wikipedia, they are called the Hadassem.
1: Yes, Harisein. But yeah, so there are tools that you can use to get around that kind of direct violence and make it more comedic. Um, So in this sense, this play feels like the most play-ish to me out of all the Shakespeare's that we've watched, not watched, listened to or read thus far because before it was a lot of monologues. There's a lot of, you know stage fighting that you have to imagine so that's more of a play as well but the whole it only comes alive on stage aspect makes it feel the most like a play out of all the things that we've written, so listened read so far
0: yes yeah, like the visual aspect is needed yeah i remember i remember there was a a I can't remember what the podcast was or what the uh, actual person speaking was, but it was some how-to-write-plays podcast that I listened to when I was in high school. And the basic idea was that when you're writing your plays, you must always ask yourself, could this be done as a radio play? And if it could, then you have to add something physical happening in it. So Shakespeare, he took the advice of that podcast. Yeah, I will ask, had you... so we we were talking about how Adriana... She's given more psychological depth. She's given more sympathy to her character. Uh, do we? Uh, but do we think that she's given any laugh lines uh, in Plautus? She doesn't have much sympathy. She's just meant to be a shrew. But she does have laugh lines. She does have lines where, yes, the joke is that she's a shrew, and the joke is uh, the 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 translator's stage direction. She says in a sweetly bitchy tone. That sort of thing. <laughs>
1: Ah, oh, that's such a good line, and yet but so in bad. This,
0: but in this play, does Adriana she has death, but does she have any you know laugh lines in what is a comedy?
1: No, but I think she is very much the foil to practically everyone else, but especially to Dromio. I mean, she's you know the straight man. So you know when Dromio is like, "Hey, by the way, uh, I I couldn't bring back our boy," and he's like. Adriana, but say, Prithee, is he coming home? It seems he hath great care to please his wife. And he, why, Mistress Shaw, my master is horn-mad. Horn-mad, the villain! And it's just like, she's very much the straight man that you bounce the jokes off of, as you would in a manzai
0: yes, the un- the unfortunate thing of women in these kinds of comedies having to be the reasonable person, the boring character who is just there so the jokes can work.
1: Yeah, that is uh the nine times out of ten unfortunate uh, duty of the lady in the comedy.
0: Act three Antiphony and doe. Are heading home, ah, but and Shiraz and Doss are already in Antiphony's house, and so when Antiphony and Doe get there, they are told to go away because the man of the house is already in the house. they can't enter the house because they are already in there. Ha ha! What a farce This scene is actually an adaptation of another play by Plautus, where a man is locked out of his house because the god Zeus is impersonating him and having sex with his wife. Shakespeare removed the cuckoldry angle. There's still the fear of cuckoldry at certain points, but he removed the actual cuckoldry. Would it be a compliment to be cuckolded by a god?
1: Uh, I think you're technically meant to take it as a compliment.
0: Yeah, so I'm hopefully not, you'll least... like it.
1: Yeah, it's like, oh man, it's just a drug, bro. It was meant to be funny, bro. It, it's like... Yeah, no, it was meant to be a compliment, bro. Your your wife's that hot, bro.
0: That is your your voice of Zeus. Yes. Antiphony! Back to the play. So Antiphony basically says, Okay, I'm not gonna fight my way into this house. I'm gonna go to my favorite barmaid. Ah, another change. This isn't a high class sex worker. No. He is going to A barmaid, like uh, the kind of lady you'd meet at a maid cafe or a hooter's bar. The kind of woman who you give little things in the hopes that she'll pretend to like you more. He goes there and also he says, I was going to give my wife this necklace chain. Actually, I'm going to give it to this barmaid. Ah, but inside the house, Luciana is criticising Shiraz for neglecting his wife. Or, as we know, neglecting Antiphony's wife. So Luciana is saying, oh, you must at least pretend that you like her. But Shiraz starts flirting with Luciana. And Luciana, depending on how you play it, is either scandalised or sort of liking it. Anyway, <laughs> then we have Doss and Shiraz wanting to leave. Things have gotten too crazy over here. And Doss goes into an extended fat joke an extended geographical fact check and at the end of the act a merchant of Ephesus called Angelo gives Shiraz the watch chain that Antiphony ordered. This will be important later on. Did I leave anything out?
1: This is more of a technicality but like um Antiphony doesn't decide to not break the door down. He is convinced not to break the door down.
0: Yes, Balthazar says to him, "Look, uh, just let you know your wife is probably not cheating on you. So, if you break down your door, people will think that something's happening, which you know probably isn't happening. So, let's not make a scene."
1: Yeah, and it's like, and then Tiffany's like, "You have prevailed. I will depart in quiet and, in despite of mirth, mean to be merry." I know a wench of excellent discourse, pretty and witty, wild and yet too gentle. There we will die. This woman, that I mean, my wife, what I protest without dessert, hath oftentimes upbraided me withal. To her will we to dinner.
0: This is, I, I'd say that in a previous part I was saying that this, like a lot of film adaptations of books, they make the characters more palatable to a general audience. I feel that this is doing that because there are there are multiple parts in this act where we get that. Like, for instance, Antiphilus he is uh I would say that the implication is that this woman, this courtesan, is not act. he's not actually having sex with this woman. It's not actually his mistress. The in my notes at least they say that, you know, this woman that I mean, my wife, but I protest without dessert, is oftentimes upbraided me with all so the idea is that he is denying that he is going out with this woman as a mistress and you know at the moment he's entirely among his guy friends he could boast about having a mistress he could be open about having a mistress so the fact that he denies having a mistress in this social context implies that he probably doesn't have a mistress this is just like a hooters waitress or a, a maid cafe waitress it's just an attractive woman he likes being nice to and who she returns his niceness in a kind of transactional relationship. But no sexy times involved. So that's already ch- making his character more palatable. He is not uh, having an affair. And also we have... Uh, at Shiraz is also made... Shiraz is also made a bit more... Uh, palatable. For instance, at the end of uh, this act, uh, at the end of this act, Ange- no, so Angelo is giving and Shiraz. He's saying, here is the watch chain you ordered, to which, uh, which actually was meant to go to Antiphony, but he's giving it to Shiraz. And then Shiraz is, I, I didn't order this. So, oh, yes, you did, sir. You're making a joke, sir. I say, no, 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 I really didn't of this. If you no, 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 keep it, sir. Keep it, sir. I've got some money. I'll give you the money. And it's like, oh, no, don't be merry, sir. I don't need the money right now. You pay when you're ready. Uh, so in Plautus's version, in Plautus's version, uh, the uh this twin would have just taken it and said, OK, can you give me some more? I'll pay you back later, knowing full well that he won't pay him back later. That character was entirely willing to take every good thing that came to him, knowing he didn't deserve it and just run off with the stuff. In this play, the guy's saying, oh, no, why am I being given nice stuff? Uh, No, I'll I'll pay you. I have money. I will pay you for this. Uh, So he's making these characters far nicer, far nicer than they are in the actual uh, original. And also, like the wife, and we mentioned Balthazar's uh, saying, you know, your wife is uh, not cheating on you. He says uh, this. And draw, so have patience, sir, oh let it not be so, here in your war against your reputation, and draw within the compass of suspect the unviolated honour of your wife. Once this, your long experience of her wisdom, her sober virtue, years and modesty, plead on her part some cause to you unknown. So in the original, this woman is meant to be a shrew, you're not meant to like her. In this version, this character is saying, no, she's a good woman. You know she has she's virtuous, you know she's good. So every character in this play is is they make them palatable, they make them nice people who are yes caught in a confusion. Shakespeare is making every character more palatable. Yeah, he's definitely far more palatable, but
1: oddly, like, Antiphony comes out a little bit worse, but I wonder if that's just got to do with the fact that Antiphony had like no personality in the Plautus
0: version. I mean, in in the in the Plautus version, he steals from his wife. Yeah, he his, does. The first act he does is he steals clothes from his wife. He's wearing it on his body. And I'd say that the the main joke in that play is that you're meant to view this guy as sort of a pathetic, nebbish sort of guy who's henpecked by his wife and who uh, can bear who can never get what he wants.
1: Yeah, but for. But oddly he actually looks a little bit worse until okay, so in the Plautus version and Tiffany's counterpart, Mackie, um, like it feels just a little bit better as a person because he does steal from his wife, but you know, he's he's a dumb fuck about it. Like his his tomfoolery is is blunted by his dumb fuckery, you know? And then at the very end, after he's he's just been, you know, shat on by circumstances, it's like, oh, my brother, hey, how are you? Let's sell my wife, and then and then like get the fuck out of here. It's just like, he, and he just drops in my estimation so hard, so fast, like a stone in a well. It's just like, no, Mackie, no. Um while Antiphony is just like generally feels like a very angry man like the whole time he's like oh yeah if my my wife is like so it gets so annoying about me like being on time and shit i was like yeah no she should be you should be on time sir and then you know he knocks on his door but he and then he's like being yelled at to not come in and he's surrounded by his bros And like, you know, he's being embarrassed and I can just, in my head, imagine him puffing up like a pigeon, like eyes rolling in his head going, I'm going to break this door down. Give me a goddamn crowbar. Dromeo makes a joke and, and, and like punches him and goes, just give me a fucking crowbar until Balazag says, Hey, 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 let's not, let's not call cause a scene. Let's, let's just go. Okay. Okay. Let's, let's just go, bro. We'll, we can chill somewhere else, and then Antiphony goes. All right, fine, yeah, no, I. We will have a good time. We will have a good time somewhere else with the lady that you keep telling me not to hang out with, bitch. And just and like,
0: that and that chain I was gonna give you as a gift. I'm gonna give it to the Hooters waitress. How'd you like that?
1: Yeah, how'd you like that cheap ball and chain? The heroes are not okay. <laughs> um so yeah he's just he just feels generally more unpleasant until at the very end when he goes to the Duke after you know going on a bit of a rampage and and threatening what feels like really real that, physical harm to his wife was
0: that ah so, oh yeah, so uh there there was one physical rampage by Shiraz and Dost. there was another one where he gets. He's imprisoned, and then he starts getting very violent towards other people. Uh, the yeah, other
1: and, and then and he sort of, like, goes to the Duke and goes, hey, bro, I bled for you. I went to war for you. Give me justice. Um, and part of me is like, are we meant to, like, think of him as, like, a misunderstood PTSD uh, war veteran, or is he just a generally unpleasant man?
0: And I'm just going... I think we're meant to think of him as being a... Given the fact that, like, at one point... Shiraz is basically saying I go around everywhere and people are praising me they're saying I'm a lovely person everyone is saying what nice deals I have going on with them everyone loves me. So the idea is that oh Antiphony, he is beloved about the town he's a, a a vital member of the community. Yeah.
1: Yeah so he's but yeah and that's and kind of I, what I say that this actually
0: is a, a contrast from Plautus's version because in Plautus's version this is a guy who just wants to have his private pleasure. He hates the fact that he's being pulled off to work, that he he wants to have sex with his mistress, but he's being pulled off to a, uh, to a court case he has to do. He hates the public life. In this version, he loves the public life. He is a vital member of the community. He loves hanging out with these other merchants. He loves this stuff. That is a big difference in Shakespeare's version.
1: Yeah. But yeah, no, I just generally do not, like Antiphony much in this play?
0: Because you're a woman.
1: <laughs>
0: Fuck you! You're not wrong! You're yes. not wrong! But the tone of voice you said it in makes me think you're wrong. No! Yes. I, I, your tone yes. is factually incorrect. The content of your words is absolutely correct. On to the matter of Shiraz and Luciana, it, there is in Luciana's, you know, she's saying to him, "Oh no, you must, uh, uh, and may it be that you have quite forgot a husband's office? Shall Antiphilus, even in the spring of love, thy love springs rot? So this entire section is done in what that uh, guy from the Critical Heritage called the doggerel rhymes of Shakespeare, ah, uh, the this alternating rhyme scheme that they didn't particularly like at the time, ah. Uh, but, so Luciana is criticizing Shiraz, thinking that she is criticizing Antiphony, but Shiraz is basically saying, Oh, you're beautiful, aren't you? He starts flirting with her. And this is one of those scenes where it does really depend on how you play this, because you could play it as Luciana being, oh, Stop, you're, you're my sister's husband, don't do this, you're being an awful person, don't do this to me. There's another way you can do it where her rebuffs are done as a kind of, oh, I, I, this is an attractive man. I like the fact that he's flirting with me. Oh, no, but it's my sister's husband. I mustn't. I mustn't. Like, for instance, uh, so at this point, these lines are on the surface. I'd say that actually the lines are entirely um, of the cut are entirely rebuffing him. Nevertheless, later in the play, It is one of those things where he says, I I did mean what I said. You know now that I am not your sister's husband. I still want to marry you. Will you marry me? Her response is not recorded, but that's just because Shakespeare doesn't like giving women words. But but the fact that she probably says yes at that point implies that there might be a potential to have a sort of a, a subtext of her being quite complimented and quite liking what's going on here.
1: Mm, that wasn't the that was not the take the audiobook took it was very much a uh, Luciana was like wait no you shouldn't no you shouldn't be doing this no that's very much the take that uh was taken on this and I kind of want to go with that version as opposed to coquettish Uh, I'm not saying coquettish.
0: I'm not saying that she's like, oh, I really... Oh, I'm playing hard to get. No, I think that the the kind of motivation here is not that she is trying to play hard to get. She is more that she knows that she shouldn't feel anything for her sister's husband, and therefore she's pushing him off, even though she actually, perhaps, if he was unattached, she would welcome these advances.
1: Yeah. Probably, maybe. Because, like... It kinda of depends on how she feels about Antiphony, which is actually, there's a really interesting the, the four lines, the no the first six lines that Luciana gives um Shiraz thinking he's antiphony is very interesting. Um and may it be that you have quite forgot a husband's office? Shall Antiphilus even in the spring of love thy love springs rot? Shall love in building grow so ruinous? If you did wed my sister for her wealth, then for her wealth's sake, use her with more kindness. Or if you like, elsewhere, do it by stealth. Muffle your false love with some show of blindness. Let not my sister read it in your eye. Like, he married her for her wealth?
0: I think it's like if, it's like if you really don't actually love her, then at least treat her well for the reasons you did marry her. And I yeah. would say that Lu- this this entire section gives Luciana's rather low standards for men, is that she, the implication here is that she thinks that, oh yes, we can't stop you from cheating on us, but at the very least pretend you like us.
1: Yeah. I'd like, say um... that the
0: fact she's saying maybe you don't love your... Maybe you don't love her, you you heartless man. the fact that then Shiraz starts being so effusive in his love for her, in his infatuation with her, maybe that catches her off guard
1: Maybe, because the thing is like um, Luciana clearly knows just how much Adriana loves Antiphony, although I just don't understand why. And you know, Luciana's going, "You know, be patient, be good, be kind." Like, you know, and Tiffany is a busy boy. So, like, you know, and, you know, Adriana, are you married? Are you married, Luciana? It's like, well, well, not not yet. Maybe eventually. They shut the fuck up. <laughs> I'm so sad right now. I don't want comfort. Okay. Wow. So, like, Luciana's clearly trying to bridge this into a reasonable marriage instead of if, if it isn't, if it can't be a happy marriage. So, like, so I I find it very unlikely that Luciana would uh, is enjoying this advance wholeheartedly by Shiraz. The the very the the fat joke um, part. I will say that Shakespeare has like very specific pieces or exchanges or um, monologues. That are good for theatre kids to put on at a school assembly, and this yes. is definitely that.
0: I I will also say that yes, it is sort of a set piece thing. Um, but I would also say that it is a fat joke it's about uh, Doe saying, "Oh, this fat woman is says she's my wife wa- or says she's my my girlfriend. Says I'm not sure if girlfriend or wife, but she's but she keeps on forcing herself on me, and I don't like it because she's so fat." So yes, the joke is that this is a fat woman and he doesn't like the look of a fat woman. But at the very end, it does seem, no, no, so this is Doss saying this, Doss saying this. Uh, but at the very end, it does seem that this woman is actually in a relationship with Doe. Yes, at the very end, it's like, uh... so There, there is, so Drom- So Do- at the very end, when Doss talks to Dromeo, it's like, there is a fat friend at your master's house that kitchened me for you today. She now shall be my sister, not my wife. And Doe says, "Methinks you are my glass, not my brother. I see you." But the, he doesn't say anything about. Uh, so this does seem to be uh, his, uh, you know, his sister-in-law rather than his wife. And Doe, and Do, this is Doe's wife, or perhaps future wife. But there's no joke where he says, "Oh no, I would never go out with that fat woman." Uh it is. It's just sort of taken as a given that, oh no, I like this woman who is big. Yeah. Act four. So Angelo had previously given Shiraz the watch chain saying, you can pay me for this later. Pay me whenever you want. Ah, but now Angelo needs to pay a merchant who is about to ship off right now. So he needs liquid cash very quickly. So he goes to Antiphony and says, you know that chain I gave you? Well, I need the money now. But Antiphony says, you never gave me the chain. I'm not going to pay you. And they get into a back and forth about this, at which point an officer comes to arrest Antiphony, saying, You need to pay your debts, sir. So Antiphony tells Doss to go to his house and get some ready money in his uh, drawers. So back at the house, Luciana tells Adriana that Antiphony tried to seduce her, when actually it was not Antiphony that tried to seduce Luciana, it was Shiraz that tried to seduce Luciana. But then we have Doss coming in to get the money and revealing that Antiphony has been arrested. And Doss and Shiraz meet and they reunite together and they go and they come across Antiphony's Hooters maid, the maid he quite likes. And they essentially think she's a witch and they start uh, running away from her. Then. Doe comes back to Antiphony. Antiphony had sent off Dos to get the money, but Doe goes to Antiphony, and Antiphony says, give me the money. He's like, you never asked for money. And Dos, and so Antiphony is lugged off to prison because he hasn't paid his debts. Adriana and Luciana have been told by the Hooters maid that Antiphony has been acting very crazy and so they assume that he must be mad, which would fit with what's been going on recently. So Adriana, Luciana, and a doctor come to tell everyone that Antiphony is clinically insane and they have the doctor give him an examination. And then uh, uh, Shiraz and Dos, because they think the island is full of magic and they think the courtesan, the, uh, the hooters maid, is also an evil witch, they come in with swords and start bashing everything away because, you know, let's destroy the magic, which just adds to the fact that Antiphony is looking pretty mad at this point. Did I leave anything out?
1: Nope, I do not believe so.
0: This is a very slight play. Um, you know, as we said, we don't have much to talk about in terms of themes and stuff like that. But because it's a farce, there is a lot of plot points that I need to get through.
1: Yeah. I mean, you could argue there's, like, a consistent um, dream-like quality like in the previous act, um, Shiraz calls Luciana his light. Lucy, light, uh, you know, ephemeral, ephesus. Like if you really like try and pick a few things, you can. It's just, it's just, they are few and far between and inconsequential enough that like if you start stringing them together, someone might go, I feel, I feel like
0: you're you're pushing it a little bit. Yes, I I'd say that the the most depth this play gets is that the characters have a level of psychology. There's no, I'd say that yes, I'd say that uh, the depth in it is just giving the characters a bit more under the hood.
1: Yeah. A few more just like a, a, a enough brain cells to rattle a box instead of just the just the two.
0: Yes, these are these are real people in a farcical plot. <laughs> And on the note, in the previous part, I was saying um, how the characters are made more palatable, like Shiraz. In the original play, in Paldus' play, he steals his wife's dress and gives it to his mistress. In this play, he doesn't steal from his wife. He has a gift that he was going to give to his wife, but actually he gives it to uh, this uh, this barmaid he likes instead. So it's, it that's not stealing. It's redirecting something he was going to give his wife. In this one, Angelo he his uh desire for the money for getting ready cash that is also made palatable like this the plot could very well have worked if angelo just said give me the money now but actually angelo he is put in a bind because there is a merchant there who says i want the money i i am leaving this this island today so i need the money right now and angelo says i don't have any ready money on me but i have given something i have Made a sale to someone else, and I'll get the money from them. So it's made entirely reasonable, entirely just—you know, this is just a reasonable thing. I need the money. I'm sorry, I I was going to give you more time, but I do need the money now. I know you're good for it. Can you give me the money now? He Shakespeare is going out of his way to make every character in this play as you know likable, palatable as possible.
1: I'm not even sure it's more of a likable thing, but I—I kind of want to say less contrived or spreading. But then again, like, okay, actually, I will take that back. It is very much making it making things less contrived. Actually, makes people more reasonable. Because, yeah, the chain is going. Shiraz says, "Are you sure you don't want the money now?" I'm, I'm good. And Angelo says, "No, it's fine. We'll do it later." And then Angelo's like, "Give us the money." And yes, it, it
0: it does. Yes, that that sort of does. Um... Reduce a plot. I was like, "Why wouldn't he accept the money then?" But now he's demanding it. Oh, there's a good reason why he's demanding it now. When he yeah. was so forgiving earlier.
1: Yeah, because the contrivance is lessened with reason. It actually makes people less seeming less insane and less cardboard. So yeah, I'm not I'm not disagreeing with your point anymore. After I saw the error of my ways. As is um, always the
0: case, and always should be.
1: No, no, not all the time, she said to herself. Boom. Um, and so to, and then we move to scene two, and the house of Antiphilus,
0: where well, Adrian. And, and on my point of you know Luciana being maybe a bit moved by what uh, by Shiraz's uh, come-ons to her, she does say in this act where, you know, when she's revealing to Adriana that your husband tried to seduce me. So Adriana says, With what persuasion did he tempt thy love? And Luciana says, With words that in an honest suit might move. First he did praise my beauty, then my speech. So she's saying, if this was honest, if if he was, uh, you know, not married to you, uh, uh they might move. So I take it as being, oh yes, I, I felt something, but, you know, obviously, you know, it's your husband, I'm not going to be moved by that at all. But, you know, maybe, if, it, if, if he was unattached, maybe.
1: Yeah, and Adriana reacts like a perfectly normal human being. Um,
0: he is the go- formid, crooked, old, seer, ill-faced, worse, bodied, shapeless everywhere, vicious, ungentle, foolish, blunt, unkind, stigmatical, and making worse in mind.
1: Who would be jealous, then, of such a one? No evil lost is wailed when it is gone. Ah, but I think it better than I say, and yet would hair in others' eyes were worse. Far from her nest, the lapwing cries away. My heart prays for him, though my tongue do curse. And it's just like, oh, Adriana, baby, you're so much better than Antiphony. Yes, <laughs> I feel that maybe
0: this can in the act uh, three. In Act three, when uh, Luciana is chewing him out, she says. Uh, even in the spring of love, they spring rots. They love springs rot. So does spring of love mean that this is like, they've just gotten, gotten married maybe a few months ago? Is this like some early bumpy bits, but they're still sort of in their honeymoon period. They're still in, maybe just after the honeymoon period, but she there's, she is still in the part where she feels very keenly the parts of him that she loved um, before they got married.
1: Yeah. Also, um... There's a saying, well, there's like a perception that um newlywed wives tend to wait for their husbands before um having a meal or to have a meal here in Japan. And um so so what, the what was that, that
0: conventional thing that a uh, that housewives say in those erotic things, do you want a meal, a bath, me? Is that yeah. something? <laughs> <laughs>
1: But so Adriana going, you know, I'm waiting for you to have dinner with and you're not here. Just sounds like a very, like, newlywed wife thing to say. Yes, um, yeah. Because if, if, if you've been married for like a year or two, maybe longer, it's just like, ah, oh, fuck it. Ali, he's, he's a big boy. Well, if you're newlywed... It's just like, yeah, you're still in the romance of it. Oh, we're, we're living in the same house now. We're like, you know, nearly wed. We should have dinner together. Why isn't he home? The dinner is waiting cold on the table with glad wrap on it or, or tin foil right now, and I'm just sitting here staring at the clock going, where is he? Yes. Why isn't he home yet? Yeah, while he's fucking drinking with his work buddies, the
0: bastard. Yes, that is definitely how it's played in this version. In Plautus's version, even no matter how early in the relationship, she would be quite gladly eating the food while and letting his go cold. That that would be the kind of you know it, that sort of nineteen fifties idea of a oh my bitchy housewife. She lets my food go cold. She doesn't keep warming it up until I get home.
1: <laughs> oh, entitled little shit. Um, but I. So just a little bit afterwards, after she's had her, you know, my heart prays for him, though my tongue do curse, um, Dross comes back and goes, hey, guys, he's 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 in jail. And I absolutely adore the way it's described. Um, oh, there it is. No, he's in tartar limbo, worse than hell. A devil in an everlasting garment, have him. One whose hard heart is buttoned up with steel, a fiend, a fury, pitiless and rough, a wolf—nay, worse, a fellow, all in buff, a back friend, a shoulder clapper, one that countermands the passages of alleys, creeks, and narrow lands, a hound that runs counter and yet draws dry foot well, one that before the judgment carries poor souls to hell—the
0: oh, original A cab mantra.
1: Yeah, I literally wrote, "Oh, Dromio, an A cab boy." <laughs>
0: And I'd say that at the time, the basic idea, the stereotype of a police officer—well, what the, the thing they had instead of a police officer at that time was them being rather stupid, corrupt people.
1: Oh yeah, no, they would have been like straight up private security forces that are all uh, in this weird. one. There does seem
0: to be uh, uh, later on. I forget what it is, but the they he suggests a rather weird kind of legal system where the bailiff, where this officer says. Look, if he doesn't pay the debt, then I'll have to pay the debt. Is that how it works? Is that how it ever worked anywhere? I mean... It does seem like the sort of weird thing that a pre-modern uh-huh, legal system would have, but is that true? Did they do that um, anywhere?
1: I mean, I honestly don't know. I mean, if you're borrowing money in Japan, um, you have um, a hoshōning, which is basically, like, um, not a referee, um, uh a guarantor you have a guarantor where if you can't pay for your debts um the guarantor promises to pay in their stead um which is a very dangerous position to be in because you need a guarantor to pay to get any loan so if your f- friend fucks off and leaves you with a mountain of debt you guaranteed yourself for your fuck-off friend. Like, you can't get away from that. And I think that's in a ridiculous system that shouldn't exist in the modern era, but it does, apparently. I'm not so sure myself because I've never had to borrow money yet and I'm desperately afraid to not.
0: And you're sure you're going to be a fuck-off friend?
1: Oh, I'm definitely... It's like, I, why wouldn't I be? I'd be a fuck-off friend if I just decided to drown in debt. Which is why I would forgive murder, so long as it's like manslaughter slash self-defense, but I will not ever forget debt on my record. It's a weird hill to die on, but...
0: It is, uh, but the the makings of comedy. (laughs) So on the point of, you know, uh, Shira, in in Plautus' version, the guy from Syracuse, he's given stuff... And he just takes it, he goes along with it. Actually, there are two bits of contrast with Plautus's version. In Plautus's version, the guy accepts everything he's given and he runs off with it, even knowing it's not his. In this version, in Shakespeare's version, he says, ''Oh, no, you're giving me this. I- I'll pay you money. I, I will pay you.'' And he's, very- and he's also, throughout this, very suspicious when people are kind to him and people give him nice things, they don't know, there's something wrong here, that I shouldn't be given all this nice stuff, I haven't deserved it, there's something going on here. The other thing is that in Plaudus's version, almost all of the good things that the Syracusian is given they're physical things or pleasurable things. He gets a new dress which he can sell somewhere. He's given money, he can go somewhere. He's given sex, he can take sex somewhere, given food. It's all physical, hedonistic things. In this one, the good thing that Shiraz wanders into is a good social position. He is, He's walking around saying, oh, people are waving to me, they're saying I'm a nice guy. They're, they're, uh, everyone's my friend for some reason, what's going on here? It's—it's So it's the the good thing he gets is a social position, which I think is... as. I mean, it's an interesting way to do it. It is a strange sort of a, yeah, it's a, I'd say that's, I won't say modern, I'm trying to find a word to describe it, but it it does feel deeper, maybe, like a deeper idea of the good life than uh, Plautus.
1: Yeah. And I think also, this might be me reading a little too deep into it, And but going back to the whole... I've lost myself seven years looking for a mother and a brother, like a drop in the ocean looking for another drop. And I've lost myself in that process. But now like people here going, they know me. They they keep calling my name and they're showing me kindnesses. Even now a tailor called me in his shop and showed me silks that he had bought for me and therewithal took measure of my body. Sure, these are but imaginary wilds and lapland sorcerers inhabit here. But after that, you can almost hear a but before Dromio of, of Syracuse interrupts his reverie. Like, I want, it's like, does he think, could this have been the life I might have had for myself, if not for my gung ho journey across the oceans looking for a brother that might not be alive even?
0: And yes, I'd say that that's a good, a good way to view it because at the end, he does settle down. He does uh, say that, I'll I'll marry you, Luciana, I'll stay here. So like in Plautus, the ending is that, oh, we are you, my brother who has a life here, my, my Ephesian brother has a life here. You, sell your house, sell your slaves, sell your wife, come with me. And the fantasy is we're two men going off freely in the world. In this one... The the happy ending is the brother who was from out of town, who had freedom to go everywhere, saying, no, I just want to settle down now. I want to have a wife, I want to have a family, I want to have a community I'm a part of. That is, Shakespeare's entirely flipped the fantasy.
1: Yeah, and um, part of me wonders if the entering of the courtesan was that temptation of, like, okay, so Shiraz thinks this town is like a mirage, you know, White Lotus, uh, palace where you're just mi- he's being you tempted- mean Lotus so, Eater, huh? You Lotus, mean
0: Lotus
1: probably. I don't know. Um, I think I feel White like Lotus
0: is an Emmy winning uh, crime TV series.
1: Okay. Um, uh, the
0: American comedy drama anthology television series by Mike White for HBO.
1: Yeah. No, I'm just thinking of the palace, um, that like lures people in with promises of joy and happiness and then they just keep trapping them there until they die but yeah I can't remember so he he's starting to think okay this whole town is in on this to tempt me to stay and since the wholesome route didn't work it must be trying to keep me here with the courtesan route and it's entirely possible that he's like no 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 I definitely don't want the road I don't want the I don't want to go down that uh choice tree on in this um Otome game. No, I've changed my mind. I don't want to be here. And that's why he's so desperate to leave and I have completely lost what the point of this point was.
0: Shit. I do entirely agree, you know, I entirely agree with this. It's I will say that if we look at this from sort of a slant view, this entire scene where, you know, he's in this place and everyone's saying, oh, I know you, I love you. This is a great thing. It does, in a way, feel like a Philip K. Dickshaw story. Like a guy wakes up with memory with, without any memories of where he is. Like a guy seems to have memories, but now he's in a situation where everyone, else, everyone else's memories are entirely different from his own and he has a new social context. Like a guy who discovers he's a replicant or something like that. Uh, um, I feel yeah. This could be a Philip K. Dickshaw story. Without the
1: comedy, <coughs> of course. Yeah. So, yeah, but it's after he's fled, going, "No, I'm, I'm don't, I am i do not i do not want this." I and maybe he's going, maybe I'll just go back to the ocean and keep looking for my twin brother and mother because I, this, this is madness. I'm beginning to doubt myself, and I already have doubts about myself and my life choices anyway. So let's get out of here. doz. does, and then Quarters like now. Out of doubt Antiphilus is mad, else would he never so demean himself. A ring he hath of mine worth forty ducats, and for the same he promised me a chain. Both one and other he denies me now. The reason that I gather he is mad, besides this present instance of his rage, he is a mad tale he told today at dinner, of his own doors being shut against his entrance. Be like his wife, acquainted with his fit, on purpose shut the doors against his way. My way is now to hie home to his house and tell his wife that, being lunatic, he rushed into my house and took perforce my ring away. This cause I fittest choose for forty ducats is too much to lose. How much is one ducat worth anyway?
0: Yes, and I think maybe they've changed their currency because there was marks before, or maybe it's a different denomination, but it does... Yes, I'm not sure how much forty ducats is, but I assume it's uh, it's not something that sneeze at.
1: Yeah, because the first one was 100 marks, 1,000 marks to yes. um, set him free, um, which is one, an amount
0: that I assume uh, antiphony has. On the yes, on the note of of his madness, this this also gives another chance for the characters to show how nice they are, how non-stubborn they are. Like Angelo says, "I knew he was not in his perfect wits." And the second merchant, the merchant who wanted the money to begin with, he says, "I am sorry now that I did draw on him." So they're saying, "Okay, oh look, obviously this guy's not in a good state. Uh, we shouldn't have been so yes, we were a bit angrier before, but you know, right now, look, we know that he's suffering. We should help him. We shouldn't ask. We shouldn't. I should not be begging him for money at this point."
1: Say, like, oh man, I fucked up. Damn, poor
0: guy. <laughs> yes, Shakespeare. He this he is doing. The first time I read this play, I thought, oh, just crazy stuff happening. It is only in comparing it to Plaudus's version that I realised just how much he has subtly changed to make the entire tone of this thing different. Like, these are not the kind of asshole characters you found in Plaudus's version, this world where seemingly just everyone's out for themselves. In this one, people are only, you know, put their foot down when they feel that, oh no, someone has really wronged me. Uh huh. But even when they find out they've had a misunderstanding, they say, "Okay, no, let's let's pull back. Let's pull back. We shouldn't have done that." So, Act Five. Act Five. This is where everything comes together, where the confusion reaches its height as well as being diffused, and all the characters get together. So. Shiraz and dos they've been going around with swords and people think they're insane, with probably good reason. They run into a priory and the abbess comes out. The abbess gives them protection. She says, no, no one may come into this priory. So Adriana and Luciana and everyone else, they come and they come to the priory and they say, uh, get get my husband and get his slave out of there, thinking that this is antiphony and Doe. Uh, but the abbess says... Well, if he's gone mad and you're his wife, then it must be your fault why he's mad. But then the duke comes by with a geon. Remember a geon? It's been four whole acts since we last saw him. We meet a geon coming up, and they're wondering, what is the fuss over here? But then Antiphony and Doe show up outside the priory, and people are thinking, oh no, what's going on? They're inside the priory. We're trying to bang on the priory doors. But at. But they seem to be outside. But then Aegeon says to Antiphony and Doe, Oh, you're my sons. I saw you seven years hence. Thinking that they're Shiraz and Dos, who he actually saw seven years hence, and not these ones who he saw like 20, 30 years hence, when they were lost at sea. But then we have Shiraz and Dos come out of the priory and meet and Tiffany and Doe. Once more, like the Spider Man meme where they're pointing at each other. Then, ah, another twist, another twist. Could, could you believe this twist that this character who has never been revealed before, called the Abbess, is actually Aegeon's wife, who was also lost at sea and is actually the mother of Antiphony and Shiraz? And they have an emotional reunion, Aegeon and the Abbess. And the Duke says, and Antiphony offers to pay the Duke the money to get his father off his uh, death sentence, but the Duke says, "Oh no, the money's not needed, and he lets them go free." Ah, happy ending, happy ending. And Shiraz vows to marry Luciana. Happy ending. Did I miss anything?
1: Um, when Antiphony and Doe uh, escape, the, they burn the beard of Dr. Pinch and also just, like, remove that fire, by quench the fire by throwing, like, mud at him.
0: It, 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 yes, they're not, they're not making their case detail. for not being mad. They're not making their case for not being mad. <laughs> uh, so, like, we were talking about, you know, the Abess, the Abess, what a twist, what a twist. She is their mother. Oh, my God, do you think that this is earned?
1: Um. Ah. It's not earned, but it's expected.
0: On my end, I think that maybe Shakespeare in this play he is trying to have some emotional moments. And I think that maybe he is trying to like in in most dramatic things there needs to be a level of plausibility to what's happening. And I think that Shakespeare is trying to leverage the level of chaos and coincidence. That a farcical comedic plot allows to make the fact that this old man coincidentally meets his long lost wife, that this out of nowhere coincidence. I think he is using the level of ray, the level of uh, acceptance the audience has for coincidences in a play like, in a comedy like this. I think that maybe he hopes that that will lead to them accepting that the abyss is there and therefore accepting the unambiguously meant to be emotional reunion. Like, uh, I'd say that the most... Ah, uh, so here is one of his most emotional speeches here, where it stops being a comedy and becomes genuinely about an old man finding his long-lost sons and finding his uh, his wife. Not know my voice, O time's extremity, Hast thou so cracked and splitted my poor tongue In seven short years that here my only son Knows not my feeble key of untuned cares Though now this grained face of mine be hid in sap consuming winter's drizzled snow, and all the conjuvants of my blood froze up, yet hath my night of life some memory, my wasting lamp some fading glimmer left, my dull, deaf ears a little used to hear. All these old witnesses I cannot err tell me thou art my son Antiphilus. So this entire this scene does have some emotional resonance to it, and I think that yeah. maybe the coincidences are meant to you have to sort of accept the coincidences if the emotions have any value.
1: Yeah. Part of me wonders if um if my take on the first act, first scene, is also somewhat influenced by this scene. Cause after that, exquisite like, you know, poem of of entreatment, and, and Tiffany's like, I never saw my father in my life. <laughs> Seven years since, in Syracusa, boy, thou know'st we parted, but perhaps, my son, thou shamest to acknowledge me in misery? The duke and all that know me in the city can witness with me that it is not so, I ne'er saw Syracusa in my life. And even Dromio is like, hey, uh, no, no, we don't know you. <laughs> it's a little further up, but is not your name, sir, called Antipholus? and is not that your bondman, Dromeo? Within this hour, I was his bondman, sir, but he, I thank him, gnawed into my cord. Now am I Dromeo and his man unbound. I am sure you both of you remember me. Al says, we do remember, sir, by you, for lately we were bound as you are now. You are not Pincher's patient, are you, sir?
0: Like, it's like this yeah.
1: constant sense of, like, almost uh, Avengers-esque bathos
0: yeah I, I again, I would you know, as with your interpretation of the first, act, first scene, I would like to see this hypothesis uh tried uh, before I accept it. I think maybe, yeah. maybe it can be done, but uh, I'll have to see it. yeah, and I always refuse to watch any stage productions of Shakespeare, any production of Shakespeare at all, so I will never see it Therefore <laughs> I'm right.
1: I can sort of see this working if it was like a written piece of media, like a comic. Um, even a fucking webtoon-esque thing where Aegean is just always shrouded in darkness and he's like really mopey and sad and has like those weird um, anime style tears that don't look like tears. They just look like parentheses and everyone's going like, no, no, this is not, this is not the vibe. You're not, you're you're in the incorrect genre.
0: Yes, it is a, uh, yes, the, tremendous whiplash, like in those comedy shows where the, the stand-up community been telling jokes, 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 and then he turns to the audience and says something incredibly either banal or incredibly tragic. And the joke is that this is a comedy show. Why are you turning to us and saying something so incredibly serious?
1: Yeah, something like that. Yeah, but that's basically how I see that scene.
0: And on the note of... so. We're mentioning before how, I was mentioning before, how Adriana perhaps has some character development, or at least the play itself is saying that the fact she keeps on moaning about her husband is a flaw in her character, which though understandable, she needs to move past. Uh, My basis for that is like, for starters, the abbess, she is saying, oh, the reason your husband is mad is because you're... Because you did something, woman. So at first is played as a joke, where she says, Hath he not lost much wealth by record sea, buried some dear friend, hath not else's eye strayed his affection and unlawful love, a sin prevailing, much in useful men, yadda yadda yadda. And Adriana says, to none of these, except it be the last, namely some love that drew him off from home. And her best says, you should for that have reprehended him. Why so I did? Ay, but not rough enough. As roughly as my modesty would let me, happily in private, and in assemblies too? Ay, but not enough. It wasn't in the copy of our conference. In bed he slept, not for my urging it. At board he fed, not for my urging it. Alone it was, the subject of my theme. In company I often glance at it still. Did I tell him it was vile and bad? And then the abbess says, And thereof came it that the man was mad. The venom clamours of a jealous woman poisons more deadly than a mad dog's tooth. So she's basically, so, uh, Adriana can't win. The abbess is saying the reason why he went mad is because you're always battering him, woman. Now, I'd say that at this point, in the original Plautus version, these lines are put into the mouth of the sort of, you shouldn't be a, a nagging woman. That is said by, you know, the, 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 the antiphony character, so the husband, and also her senile old father. So these aren't really uh, founts of authority. Here it's said by the abbess in a rather long speech that sort of suggests a level of moral authority. But then... I'd say that what what really clinches my thought that in this play Adriana is a sort of her shrewishness is something to be grown past Adriana so Luciana says she never reprehended him but mildly when he demeaned himself rough, rude, and wildly, and then she turns to Adriana, why bear you these rebukes and answer not to which Adriana says she did betray me to my own reproof. The idea is that I no, I, 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 the reason why I don't rebuke the reason why I don't respond to her is because no, I see reason in what she says. I shouldn't be such a shrew. Uh yes, yeah, so I do feel the play is saying her shrewness is understandable, but no, a woman shouldn't be a shrew. Be kind to your husband. That sort of thing.
1: Mm, the thing is, like, I feel like that line that could be played for really good laughs. So Luciana's basically going, you know, look, she only did it in a reasonable way. Like, Adriano, like, what are you doing? Why are you being so quiet about it? And Andrea is, is like, you know, she might be right. Oh, well, good people enter and lay hold on him. Yes. <laughs> she's like, she just, she's like, she's not wrong, but I'm right. Yes. And, then, um, and continu- it's like, good people enter and lay hold on him. Just go and get my husband still, please.
0: <laughs> yes, that definitely could be played as a joke, yes. Yes. Uh, yes. There's the, a the sheer contrast there. Yes.
1: So, yeah, I still. So in that sense, I don't agree that she is ever tamed. She's like, you know what? I, I live by this truth. <laughs> this is and my truth. I
0: do truth. think that maybe like Luciana gets a bit of character development because before she was saying, doesn't no matter what your husband does, you must always be patient. Here she's saying she never reprehended him, but mildly. No, don't, don't. It's like, it's like no, I'm the one who's allowed to criticise her or something like that. But also, it's like, yes, I say this and I... But now that someone else is saying it to her, I realise it's a bit silly to expect this level of uh, submissiveness from a wife.
1: Yeah. Go get my husband, guys! Put him in chains! And,
0: I mean, there's not much more to say about this play. I will say that like the, the 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 so shakespeare he has added the plot where the father aegion in the original play the uh, antiphony and the shiraz's father does not exist in this one he the beginning is a ticking time bomb this old man is going to get killed if you don't get in the money so and the duke repeatedly says you know, if I was in my power, I'd let you go. But no, it's our laws. I cannot fight my laws. You need to get 1000 marks by the end of 24 hours. If that's not, I will have to kill you at the end of that. That is just how, the law. And that is how it is. That sort of, for some reason, Shakespeare puts in the fact that um, so. And so, Antiphony says, these ducats pawn I for my father here. Okay, the plot is solved. The money is being given. The duke can now finally do what he's always wanted to do and let the guy free while still obeying the law. No, the duke says it shall not need. Thy father hath his life. So he's saying the law doesn't matter. You know how I was planning to kill you earlier on, and how I said it was out of my power, and how I said uh, unless someone gives me a thousand marks, no, I don't. I I will just destroy the law here. So the entire conceit of the beginning, the entire ticking time bomb just gone. It is revealed to be nonsense. I, I wonder why Shakespeare changed it like this.
1: I think it's also because of the comedy. Yeah, no, no, here it is. Um, yeah, um, Luciana, kneel to the Duke before he passed the Abbey. Enter Duke Salinas, attended Aegean, bear with the headsman and other officers. Well, yet yeah, once again, proclaim it publicly. If any friend will pay the sum for him, he shall not die. So much we tender him.
0: Yeah, like, he, he is definitely looking for any way out of it.
1: Like, uh, he's just going, like, any way out, please! Can I just, let me let me obey the law, please! And, um,
0: like... And by the end of this emotional reunion, he is so full of good feeling that he will just say, no, I am Duke, I'll do what I please.
1: Yes. And also, money was presented. Money was presented, so he was like, money's been presented, doesn't mean I have to take it. He's got it, we're good, Yes! We're good. We had a happy ending, babies.
0: Like Selinus, like that. Uh, it's like in the Victorian era, there was a kind of sentence called "death recorded," and what it meant was that yes, technically this deserves the death penalty, but I don't think this person deserves to die. So I'll, I'll just put on the record, "death recorded," and they can go free.
1: <laughs> I love that. That's great. But yeah, I'm definitely getting that vibe from Selinus, and I adore him. He's very cute, which yeah. also, again, this is making me go in the first scene. If he has that very same energy, it's like okay, 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 okay. This is too sad. We gotta make sure you're alive, baby. At the end of the day, just beg anyone. I'll go beg too. I'll do it in your honor, Eeyore. And he goes like, "Don't talk to me about life."
0: Yes, my. I, I will say that maybe that it, still I am. Pushing against that idea, and I will say that if that is the case in the first scene, if that was Shakespeare's intention, I feel that he should have made it shorter. Those speeches much shorter. <laughs> oh yeah,
1: like I'm not like I'm I'm. Convinced You're not saying you, it was successful. Making... You're
0: saying that was the attempt.
1: Your your dial is heading in in my direction. I can feel it. Yes, I agree that it's um with the current model. It's, it's a bit too much, but with a bit of tweaking baby, we can do this.
0: Yes, yeah. I you know most Shakespeare productions they do cut out various lines. I'd say that this play is quite short already, but um, you know they already cut out lines. So if you did cut out a few lines of that of those opening monologues, you could make it uh, doable and I'd say I, I'd say the only reason why the Duke actually interrupts a geon is because even Shakespeare himself knew this is getting a bit long. I need to have some interaction here. Yeah. Actually, this play, this is the shortest play of Shakespeare. And yet throughout the, like according to the Oxford introduction, throughout the time period um, of, you know, throughout the 300 years after this play was published, it was the shortest play in Shakespeare's repertoire, but still people felt it needed to be much shorter so that people would take it. Ho <laughs> The idea is, was that, you know, a, a farce and a fast, you know, a lot of unlikely things happen. So you mustn't give the audience any time to think about it. You have to cut it out quickly so that everything's rushing forward so that the audience doesn't think, wait, why, why did that happen? No, but you just rush through it.
1: I think it's pretty well crafted though.
0: Like- It's like, it's... A, maybe that's just, you know, modern, modern films have, are so full of certain plot points and certain levels of logic that we as modern readers, are more primed to accept what the past thought was incredibly uh, unlikely. But you, you notice in criticism of the past then people saying, oh, the plot is so unlikely. Oh, the plot of Comedy of Errors is unlikely. Oh, the plot of Othello is unlikely. In the past, a lot of people said, oh, this is such an unlikely plot. Why would anyone believe this plot? And yet we when we read that we think, oh, it's this is a perfectly... Uh, it does not strain the willing suspension of disbelief.
1: It really doesn't. I. If I had to tweak it a little bit more to make it more believable, I'd like make sure everyone has a reason to be dressed similarly. Like maybe it's like um
0: Again, that's one school, of those things where, where everyone it feels has feels wear like wearing. if you don't mention it, the audience doesn't question it.
1: Yeah, and if you and part of maybe it's like one of those things that if, if you feel like you need to clarify it, you'll you're being over the top like the live action beauty and the beast is like why is because enough people just bellaboard the is bellaboard the correct word i don't even know just you know talking about how stockholm syndrome how bell is just like a damsel in distress that is tricked into being a, a toxic person's husband and the disney and the live action just felt the need to over explain all those frankly nitpicky pointless points it was the whole point it, like you didn't need to do that why would you need to do that you're just pandering to the fuckwit and maybe my going it's, this it's is like more... there was
0: a uh, it, the the comic book writer Grant Morrison uh, who did a lot of Batman comics Uh they said that People people say he's Scottish, so I'm going to try a Scottish accent. Uh, mm-hmm. People say that, uh, that children don't know the difference between fiction and reality. No, it's the adults who don't know the difference between... I'm, I'm getting a bit French. Uh, <laughs> it's, the adult, it's the adults who don't get the difference between fiction and reality. was children, you give them Batman, they understand... It's fake. You don't have any children saying, oh, why can Batman fit a shield in his utility belt? No, it's it's fiction. It's fake. They understand that. They don't ask that question. But adults, they keep on saying, Oh, well, how could Batman fit a shield in his utility belt? Does he have some secret compression technology? It's not real. It's not real.
1: Exactly. So like going, well, why aren't uh, uh, why are they dressed the same? you know it's like it doesn't matter it's fun this is funny if you really care about that put them in a like a harvest festival where everyone has to dress up like greeks okay and maybe make one like belted to the left and the other one is belted to the right it's a small detail that readers slash audience members can pick up on but the the fucking in my in the, ver- the Bell play. Shakespeare
0: version I saw, they were dressed the same, but one of them had a moustache and the other one didn't. Now, That's that a- just raises some questions there. Why that do you keep- raises more questions! So why, nah! do you keep- why do you keep shaving off your moustache and going it back in less than an hour?
1: But yeah. Um, so maybe this, these nitpicky points are exactly that. Like, it's, It's meant to be fun. It's meant to be funny. Just shut the fuck up and enjoy the goddamn play.
0: Yes, we we, we started this. I'd like to remember that you're saying just shut the fuck up and enjoy the goddamn play. We started this by you yourself suggesting a way to explain the fact that they are wearing the same clothes. So at the very end, you started saying fuck off to yourself. Yeah,
1: no, to be honest, yes. (laughs)
0: There, is, there are two wolves inside of you. One of them says, explain everything. The other says, let it be, let it be. One of those wolves is saying, fuck off to the other.
1: Yeah, they're probably saying fuck off to both of them, each other. But, you know, it's just like, it doesn't matter. It's fine. It's meant to be funny. <laughs>
0: That was Shakespeare's The Comedy of Errors. And now we go around the panel. So, handing out. So, we go around and we say one thing we did not like about this play. Sophie?
1: Did not. I'm actually struggling to find. Eh. Antiphony. I didn't like Antiphony. He just felt a little too, like, bro like he, he definitely felt like an a bros actually, before
0: hose kind of guy.
1: Definitely bros before hose in a toxic way, and um, and I didn't like that he actually felt like a danger to Adriana after a little bit, especially at the end. Because as soon as you put in an element of danger into a comedy, it ceases to be a comedy. It seems it's it's not fun anymore. So um, I feel like um, William, or could at have... least
0: the element of danger. You don't. You have to be able to entirely not care about the element of danger.
1: Yeah, like
0: like Wily Coyote getting crushed by an anvil. You, exactly. you don't care if he suffers.
1: Exactly. So, like, um, I wish William had balanced that a little bit more. Just tweaked it so it actually felt a little more jokesy rather than, like, potentially life-threatening to Adriana. Yeah, no. I I just wish he had, uh, I wish that character had been balanced a bit more, because I definitely didn't get that vibe from Plautus's Mackie, which is, like, incredible. It was very much a, I am, why am I being interrogated or being potentially insane when I'm definitely the most sane person in this fucking room? energy um that um and tiffany didn't have it was more of a i'm angry and i'm about to kill people so give me justice before i do and i'm just like oh no
0: and the thing i did not like as as i said earlier in this thing i do not like comedies that try to be at all serious. Uh, I do not like them trying to inject any emotionalness. The com- the only emotion should be laughter. The second you stop doing that, you stop doing your job. So that's the only thing I didn't like about this. Uh, or, at the very least, the emotion and the depth and the and the meaningfulness must be always delivered through laugh-worthy lines. So that's... The thing I didn't like about this is Shakespeare tried to do both. Uh, your ambition was your undoing, Shakespeare. <laughs> and the thing you liked something
1: i liked most of the play um Ooh, but what did i like in particular i liked a cabbed romeo doors yeah <laughs> very um and just you know the shoulder clapper that very sentence that very description just immediately made you think of like a a surprisingly british um cop and it just made me think of you know those letters that you get from ancient greece or rome going yeah hi cousin hope you're having a lovely time in in wherever sicily um recently got my house renovated the the carpenter i paid good money but he was a piece of shit and um the traffic is awful when i when is the local government gonna fix that it's like oh no, they had those exact same problems three, 5000 years ago, and we're just going to continue having them, and that's so beautifully human.
0: The thing I liked about this play was the way that Shakespeare took... He, he has taken almost every plot point, the same basic plot, but he manages to, in some very important ways, turn the ideological slant of the work around. In the Plautus one, it's about, oh, let's- let's get the- it's sort of almost a selfish ple- it's entirely a selfish pleasure, where it's that oh, the pleasure I can get is from material things and fucking people over, and at the end, the- the happy ending is running off from all your responsibilities and just, you know, shipping off somewhere else. Freedom! Freedom! Whereas in this play, the fantasy, the- the good things are being embedded in a social community, And the happy ending is the brother saying, no, I don't want to go over the world anymore. I don't want this freedom. I want to settle down with someone and be part of a community. So we can... It is the way that Shakespeare manages to use a plot for almost the entire opposite ideological purposes.
1: Yeah, that's actually a fair point. Like, it was obvious just reading it and going, "Oof, that is very different. But you're, you're right. Just the way that it has been constructed is quite masterful.
0: This is, this is uh, like the reason why I read Plautus was at, at the beginning when I first suggested we do Plautus, it was mainly just, oh, this is what it's adapted on. Oh, let's just do that. It'll be an interesting thing to do. It does, doing these ways of looking at it, adaptations does honestly show us quite a bit of shakespeare's thinking process i will say that we'll be very uh, prudent about which original pieces we do in future ones because a lot of the time the works that shakespeare is adapting are not that good they are not really worth reading uh, <laughs> so, so like for romeo and juliet we are not going to read the original uh, poem that it's based on that that one is uh, apparently not that good um uh, perhaps for one of the roman plays we will do some plutarch maybe that will help you know so we are uh, we're going to be more prudent about which of the non-Shakespeare originals we do but uh next month we are going to be doing another Shakespearean influence another Roman influence this time by the famous stoic the famous writer of stoic philosophy and Tarantino-esque violent drama Seneca Seneca We are going to be doing Seneca's Medea. This is not going to be a... We are doing Seneca because next time after that, we are going to be doing Titus Andronicus, Shakespeare's most bloody, most Senecan tragedy.
1: (laughs) I'm not looking forward to this, mostly because I will have to sit down and read it.
0: That's right that's right we are forcing Sophie to read we're going to force her to read about a child getting killed by its own mother
1: Like I'm personally fine with that it's it's the sitting down and reading that's the issue
0: That was the comedy of that is see you next time
1: See you next time <laughs>
0: Thank you for listening to Shakespeare and Powell. A list of references to the works cited in today's episode can be found in the episode description. The opening, interstitial, and closing music of this podcast is a public domain recording of Henry Purcell's The Fairy Queen, sourced from newsopen.org. Thank you for listening.